Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us. And so it's recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. Welcome, everybody. We have a special episode on our hands today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to introduce our guest for the day, Rob, who is a movie fan. He's a friend of ours, and he definitely knows more about Godzilla than either of us. So we are more than happy to have him for our discussion on today's movie, Shin Godzilla. And I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Really excited yeah. to talk about Shin Godzilla. Woo! Yeah, thanks for coming on, Rob. We think we will probably provide some key context for this discussion. Uh <laughs> As, uh, as people will hear as we get into it, this is a really distinct uh, Godzilla property, and a lot of it sort of uh, is effective in comparison to other Godzillas and what it does differently and what it refers to. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, just to launch into it, in case anyone doesn't know, in case you haven't watched it yet, this is the 2016 installment in the 67-year Godzilla franchise, which examines how the modern Japanese government and allied forces in general would respond when a skyscraper-sized lizard comes ashore to wreak havoc in Tokyo. Shin Godzilla was written and directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi and stars Hiroki Hasegawa as Rando Yaguchi, Makako Ichikawa as Hiromi Ogashira, Satomi Ishihara as Kayoko Ann Patterson, and Yutaka Takanuchi as Hideki Akasaka. And as always, we like to provide you with a tagline, which is a good one this week. Uh, it's Shin Godzilla is a god incarnate, a city doomed. That is a good one. Like, I think it really, like, you know, it adds some gravitas. It really gets across uh, Godzilla and what he represents. However, I think that there's a line from the movie that operates as an, as an even better one, or maybe two lines that I've noted here. So uh, I'll, let me, I'll just throw these out there, and you guys let me know what you think. One of them is, so much red tape. Every decision requires a meeting. That's the foundation of democracy. I literally have that line, like, written out um, <laughs> as one to potentially, like, be my one-liner for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It yeah. it kind of does summarize a lot of the key elements that we are going to discuss today. So that's a mm-hmm. that is a good one. I, I'll take that. Yeah. And then the other one, like it's a little melodramatic, uh, but I also think it works, especially for this movie. And it's a uh, man is more frightening than Godzilla, which I mean doesn't really get to get to the core of the red tape like the other <laughs> one. But I, I I still think it's worth noting. Well, it's kind of it kind of fits with the hokey theme of a lot of the taglines we've brought into this show so far. So I like that one too. Absolutely. Uh, so, Rob, to get started, um, do you want to give us, like, the highest level sort of rundown of the Godzilla mythos? Like, if someone's never heard of Godzilla somehow, which I think would be virtually impossible, what are, what are the couple things that they would need to know? What are the, what are the key things from his uh, near seven-decade legacy? Oh, man. I mean, if you don't know what Godzilla is, Godzilla has always been a giant monster that uh, attacks various cities around the planet. Um, or protects various cities around the planet, or sometimes he's a small monster, or sometimes he can be an environmental uh, environmental activist, or basically anything. In the long runtime of Godzilla, which is the longest running franchise of any film franchise, I believe, uh, Godzilla's done just about everything, fought just about everything, and represented just about everything. But at its core, it's a giant lizard-like monster with atomic breath that uh, destroys cities either accidentally or intentionally. Wow! Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That was. Uh, I think that was well done. That's that's kind of the uh, you know, explain like I'm five for Godzilla. <laughs> uh, he's he's been in a lot of different places. He's done a lot of different things. And uh, yeah, he's he's responsible for the entire kaiju 
genre, right? You wouldn't have more modern stays like Pacific Rim without him. Yeah, and, and the popularization of like the monster film in general. Like the original Godzilla mm. really set off and popularized the idea of giant monster movies. Yeah. And all started with and, and, a bunch of guys in costumes fighting each other in scaled down cities. Yeah, and maybe more important than that, it made them serious. Like people took them right. seriously. And Godzilla eventually did not or became the opposite of something serious, but monster movies weren't really treated as legitimate film until the original Godzilla, at least as far as I know. Right, like you're you so you're talking like Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman, things like that. Yeah, them, like just big ants. It, yeah. it was always kind of hokey, it was always kind of cheap. The effects were always sort of I don't know distractingly bad um and i think the original godzilla was the one that really started to change the way film was made to make monster movies convincing Mm -hmm. and that that was the 1954 godzilla and i do think the only real western analog would be king kong which was 33 right Um, but again dealing with entirely different metaphorical subject matter and things like that um you know, the most on-the-nose metaphor ever, uh, you know, the moment you sort of start scratching the surface of Godzilla, you get into the idea of him as a metaphor for the atomic bomb um, in Japan. Well, yeah, I think that's the uh, origins of his character design, right? Uh, well, definitely um, the, the origins, like, within universe, like, within the media itself, right? He often is a byproduct of atomic waste, as he is here in Shin Godzilla, and yep. I believe in the original Godzilla. Yeah, I but think that's also... almost always correct. There's some in, uh, there's there's some movies that came out in the early 2000s, um, where I, th- there's one where I believe Godzilla is just straight up, like, an, a god that, like, mm-hmm. exists on Earth, but um, almost always Godzilla is, yeah, like... Radiation has mutated some lizard. It's almost always built around radiation. And the atomic breath is kind of a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And the fact Absolutely. that he, he like runs on nuclear power, that's, his, that's what he consumes to generate his power, right? Or nuclear waste, I should say. And more directly, he destroys cities like an atomic bomb would and has. Um, especially, uh, you know, more, more directly there in Japan in their past. So I also want to provide some context for the, the sort of creation development of this specific property. Uh, it was co-written and co-directed by Hideki Anno, um, who is a fairly important creator in Japan and in a lot of crossover media, especially in anime. He wrote and produced, and, and it was his brainchild, was uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is a really foundational anime, and it deals, again, with sort of the defense of earthly society against unknown and monsters that you can't understand. So that's kind of where Hideaki Anno made his name, was with that, that uh, series. It's, it's, uh, it's iconic. It's really important. And uh, I think that that lends itself directly to him producing something like this. And in fact, when he was first offered this to work on Shin Godzilla, he first refused it because he was just finishing the third Evangelion movie and he was so wiped out by it. But then when he started to look into the options he had available to him and where he could take the Godzilla mythos, uh, I think he really bit into it. Well, yeah, I, I think I'm the only one of the three of us who hasn't watched through Neon Genesis Evangelion, but I don't know, he seems like the right director to hire for something like Shin Godzilla then, right? Yeah, well, part of the charm and I think part of the reason he was able to create something like Evangelion was that um, he's part of this generation of uh, Japanese media enthusiasts who grew up when the first ones were coming out. Like during the first generation, he would have been roughly of the right age to sort of take in the early Godzilla stuff, um, early um, animated movies, early animated series. 
And then him and his contemporaries were in place to come in and start creating things with their own experience in mind. So a key quality of what Hideki Anno brought forward in the things that he started creating at the beginning of his career was um, something that's really common nowadays called fan service, right? And often that's reduced down to the idea of just putting a lot of like sexuality and promiscuity into your characters in in Japanese animated media. But um, that's actually not the whole picture. It also included like demonstrating and showing the highly mechanized inner workings of like cars and Gundam suits and mecha suits and, you know, things like you see in Pacific Rim and even like really complex, unnaturally overwrought guns. Um, and that's the kind of stuff where I think he touches on in this movie a little bit. You get some fan service in terms of the complexity of the tools available to the military. But also, I think this this may be really like overthinking it, but I, I think the idea of the, the way that they get into the granularity of bureaucracy in this is almost like a meta take on fan service and being, let's show you every single step in this process. Right, because... I think we discussed a little bit even before we started recording today that some of the in-depth crossing through so much red tape, like some of these scenes in the movie, they just seem to be ironic or made out to be kind of foolish. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot happening in this movie that is just discussion. They're just showing you the boardroom processes at play as people try to respond to something that they have no disaster plan for. Yeah, there's lots of logistics speak and just bureaucracy that doesn't doesn't directly contribute to a plot or story or character development. It just builds flavor for the film in kind of getting across how this world that we're in works. I suppose that's the important yeah. thing to note here is that like compared to other Godzilla movies, whether in Japan or in the West, there are no like, oh, this is the family at the core of this and they need to save the son or the daughter from Godzilla or there's no like emotional connection in this movie. You're entirely watching people with authorized power failing to overcome the threat of Godzilla. Yeah. I think that's a really refreshing take on, you know, policy and government processes. I think that this movie is kind of divisive amongst people who've seen it because some people see this, all this government jargon as boring or useless, but engaging. Yeah. It's it well. And to some extent, it is. It's very hard to follow at times. There's a, a lot of titles that get thrown at you. And if you're watching this with subtitles, then the titles are actually at the top of the screen, too, like of characters when they're introduced. So it's really hard to actually keep track of it all. But I don't think the point of the movie is to keep track of every character. Yeah, and there's often like other text on the screen at the same time as both like the subtitles and the title cards for right. these characters. Like there might be there's lots of insert footage of like news broadcasts within like the world of the film and it's just like subtitles and titles on top of news title footage which is full of words and yeah it, it becomes very busy very quickly but I think the film is extremely aware that it's doing this and it's all part of the presentation. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah, it go it goes to great lengths to sort of show you here are all the people involved in these processes, here are all the resources they have. There's all there's many shots of just like one thing in a long row of things, right? So whether it's like hard hats or tanks or artillery or even just like reporters' pens moving, right. they show you society as this large multifaceted organism that just fails over and over with our our greatest tools, whether that's democracy or or, you know, bombs, 
just failing entirely to do anything against uh, Godzilla. Yeah, and I was going to say, it also legitimizes the film a lot. Like, Godzilla tends to be campy, it tends to be non-serious or self-aware outside of a handful of entries. Right. This one is not like that, and I think all this this boardroom stuff going on, all these politics, like, using real military equipment and um, actual, like, titles and designations makes the film feel real, which is atypical for Godzilla, but um, does a lot to get the point of the film across. Yeah, I think it's very effective at communicating this sense of realism throughout the film because of the, all the complexities. And even if some of it's made up, like, it's really hard to tell. Yes, and I do think you guys touched on this earlier that it almost, it hits the point of, like, a parody or it becomes almost ludicrous where the first act of this movie is a lot of people in boardrooms talking about what this thing in Tokyo Bay might be. And you never see any of them actually look at it. You never see them reference visual footage. They're all like looking at maps of their area and saying, well, could it be this? Could it be this? They're looking at um, more, more obtuse scientific data. And they constantly miss these points where like a giant tail comes out of the water or a creature starts coming out of the water. They're always busy doing something else. They're in the middle of a different process. Right. What they never forget to do is host a press conference. Almost every <laughs> conversation ends with people being like, we'll have a press conference or gather the cabinet. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe this is a good time to actually get into our scene for today because this is exactly what we're going to be discussing. Mm-hmm. The scene is from 1242 to 1555 into the movie. So we have a three minute, 10 second scene approximately. So... As the first form of Godzilla moves upriver, the Prime Minister begs his team to find new perspectives. The character Hiromi, played by Mikako Ichikawa, is called in and immediately cuts through the bureaucratic decorum with radical ideas about Godzilla's capabilities and rapid evolution, including the idea that it could support its own weight to walk on land. Bound by procedure, the cabinet still agrees to go forward with a press conference in order to calm the public at which the Prime Minister foolishly goes against the plan and announces that Godzilla cannot come on land according to experts. He is immediately interrupted by an aide who informs him that Godzilla has, in fact, come ashore. End scene. So a lot of things are happening. One of the most important aspects of this scene is the introduction of the key character Hiromi Ogashira, who we're going to refer to as just Hiromi today. Uh, do you guys want to discuss like the significance of this character being introduced at this point in the movie? Yeah, well, I think... Like, she's the first one in the movie that's brought in who's not strictly following the code of conduct or the decorum that you have in these boardrooms going so far. Um, she's Right, like you, just said, like you just said, like, before this, no one's even looking at the mm-hmm. footage. And the first thing we see Hiromi doing is looking at the actual footage. Yeah, she's off in a corner. She's, she's going over this footage of, of sort of Godzilla uh, breaching through the shallows. And, and sort of analyzing it just, like, obviously as an environmental background expert, but, and, but she's also just applying some common sense. You have all these people in the same room as her saying, here's the things we know about Godzilla and here's what we know it can't do. And she's immediately refuting their, their statements. Yeah. yeah, and there's an interesting uh, comparison between her and the other biologists they bring on in a slightly earlier scene where all of them kind of have these saving face comments where they're like, I refuse to comment on this without more information or it might be a dinosaur, but we really don't know. Right. Where she just identifies the critical nature of the situation and um, suggests what the next steps should be, which I think is the first time a character in the film is like beyond just following what would be the typical code of conduct for any emergency situation, providing advice and, like, concern. Well, and, it, it, well, her and, and Yaguchi does have that outspoken moment earlier that he kind of gets chastised for when he says that it's right, a creature. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's based on how he read that there was or saw footage online that people had posted of exactly. it and claiming it's a creature. And again, yeah, there are all these sources of direct evidence from their citizens, people who are on the ground, people who are seeing what's happening, and they, for the first parts of the movie, they just keep going with these experts who are like, well, the charts show this, but I don't have enough data to make a call because if I make the wrong call, it'll be bad for me in my career. And there's even, like, in an earlier scene, I love there's this part where they, they're trying to figure out what they want to say it is. And I think the prime minister says, well, let's follow a process of elimination. And the next line is a guy acting like he's doing that, and he does the opposite. He goes, uh, it's a volcano or event. What else could it be? Which is the yeah. reverse flow of information <laughs> and, di- and direction you would have in a process of elimination, which is what can't it be? And I love that they, right. they do that side by side, and nobody in the room is like, wait, wait, wait. What are, what are we doing here? Right? Yeah, and I, I like the point that Rob made earlier too about how there's the three experts that come in prior to this scene and one of them's a paleontologist one's a biologist one's a marine biologist and they all just play it totally safe with the prime minister and he gets out of this meeting completely frustrated with the with wasting his time and then he asks people on his task force to find someone who knows something and it's it happens to fall upon uh like one of his minister's secondhand men who then says that he knows a smart ministry, a smart environment ministry friend from college, but she's low ranking. And then they end up calling her. And this is Hiromi, who ends up being a massive part of the task force assembled to defeat Godzilla. Yeah, because she's in the room. She's looking at the footage and they're deciding what they're going to say in this next press briefing. And they're saying, well, all the experts say it won't be able to support its weight when it comes up on land, which apparently is like an armchair argument against Godzilla for years now, like people online who right. are saying Godzilla would never be able to support its own weight. I remember the same thing being brought up about like the really big dragons in Game of Thrones. There's just there's a critical point in terms of our physics where a creature can't be any bigger; it would just collapse. Um, right. And she she immediately she interrupts them and she says, "No, it's already supporting its own weight." And then she gets chastised. The environment minister is like, "I'm right. sorry for her. She broke decorum." And they go forward in the press briefing which with what should be an obviously incorrect conclusion. Yeah. And she also is the first person to like hint at what the threat they're fighting is when she says it's kind of like a lungfish. It's adapted to both water and Mm -hmm. land, which is sort of like hinting that this creature is evolving and adapting to its environment quickly. And uh, I think that's sort of like what makes Godzilla such a threat in this movie is his ability to adapt to situations Mm -hmm. right and it's why it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what it is at the start of the film right yeah i really i like the way that they define her expertise in this in that it's not she's not some magic genius character who comes in and is like i know everything there is to know about this because i've been i've had a podcast you know about it and i've been working on it on the side (laughs) Um, she comes in and she applies common sense and looks at what's available to them. So her expertise is in not following decorum or not following due process. That's what makes her good is in this, in this role and in this movie. It's nothing yeah, I, unwritten, you know? Yeah, I really like her character for kind of being this like very cunning, doesn't follow the rules, uh, kind of willing to break the rules at any point to just say what she needs to say and this happens throughout the film with her and it's always like something important that she discovers so it just kind of like goes back to this idea kind of like contrasting with the experts that they brought in earlier 
like all these old men who mm-hmm. have these old ideas that aren't useful to the prime minister, but then contrasted with the youthful ideas brought forth by Hiromi and the main character, Rando Yaguchi, uh, they represent kind of this younger, refreshed mindset that allows them to actually get closer to the issue of Godzilla or like figure out Godzilla a lot quicker. Yeah. And Hiromi is always working. I don't think there's a mm-hmm. single shot in the movie right. of her where her eyes just aren't fixated on her laptop, like That's right. actively trying to solve problems. Yeah, she's not, like, looking up, trying to, like, banter with everybody else in the cabinet. I was going to say, even compared to the other members of the uh, soon-formed Unidentified Creature Response Special Task Force. Oh, man, I almost got it. (laughs) Even even when compared to the Unidentified Creature Response Special Task Force, which Yaguchi forms later with Hiromi and Akasaka, they show those people over the course of multiple days getting tired, needing to eat, needing to drink tea, things like that. They're kind of complaining. Right. They're even talking about careerism and about like if this goes well, what it could mean for them and their future prospects. Uh, Hiromi, yeah, she's working the entire time. I think the, one of the one of my favorite parts later, and I know we're getting out of the scene now, is when she just calls Yaguchi out for just stinking after mm. days of not showering. <laughs> And she's just blunt like this the whole movie. It's it's a really refreshing character. I, uh, and that's kind of part of the reason why we chose this scene. Yeah, following this part of the scene, you've got the Prime Minister sort of concludes the thing by saying, okay, we're going to say it can't come up on land because that's what our experts say. Um, get me my suit, right? And he... P- he says, the sooner we hold a press conference, the better. Which, again, every, every time that there's urgency in the film, the urgency is portrayed through holding press yeah. conferences. There's nothing that people rush faster in this film mm-hmm. than that. And, like, neglecting And response. it never goes right, right? So, yeah, he, uh, he gets on his blue jumpsuit, which is a very specific, like, real-world thing, right? If you look up, you can look up reviews right. and, and context for this where, similar to, like, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown or the Tohoku earthquake and resulting tsunami... Prime Minister leadership would always get on camera wearing these suits. Sort of shows that they're prepared for disaster. They're ready to work, ready to make sure things are safe. Um, so he puts this on and he gives this press conference where they do say, yes, there is this creature it came up in Tokyo Bay and it's coming up the river. But don't worry, all our experts say it cannot come on land. And then they go so far as to say, I repeat, it cannot come up on land. And he says something to That's the effect right. of like, so uh, be be assured or be calm or something like that. Or don't worry, right? Yeah, he said, <laughs> we we are sure that it would be crushed under its mm-hmm. own weight. So there's no danger of it coming ashore. And then cue one of the greatest comedic moments in the movie, I'd say, is oh, right yeah. after, like the press conference is not done and an aide comes up and excuses himself for interrupting and immediately tells him that it just, it just made land. It just came on shore. <laughs> <laughs> and like it's like the back camera of the press conference cam it like does this big zoom out yeah. to get like the aid coming in and then zooms back well, in yeah and then it's, you, you, it's very yeah, you get, very you get an over the shoulder on the aid where you get the prime minister's yeah. face when he's like it did right and then it cuts to uh the next sequence but yeah. i do think this uh this press briefing is uh is important and it's obviously a great example of how all sort of the press briefings and the public facing leadership communication goes in this movie well yeah he like right before this like I think one of the last things the prime minister hears before you see him at this press conference is Hideki, one of the main characters, saying, please only give verified information at the press conference. And the prime minister agrees to this. But like Rob said, they like rush into it. And then the prime minister gets excited. And then he sees the panic of the public. And then he makes up this lie that's as that goes against what they were just talking about. And the creature actually can come on mm-hmm. land. 
I mean, like his next line is literally, I just got proven a liar. Or now what? I just got proven a liar. That's right. Yeah. Like our scene kind of ends with the prime minister getting ushered down this concrete tunnel. Uh, He says, tell me what's happening out Mm -hmm. there. And forget the experts. Tell me what's happening. Yeah. And it's this kind of stuff that leads to the eventual sort of, uh, they give more authority to Yaguchi and Hiromi. And they give them more resources to work with later in the film, which obviously becomes a part of one of the more successful attempts to uh, mitigate the threat of Godzilla. Um, yeah, it's it's an early turning point in terms of giving a bit more power to the lesser characters. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, none of this happens before we get our first actual full-fledged look at the first phase of Godzilla in Shin Godzilla. You get a, you get a hard cut from the end of that press briefing when the prime minister realizes that he was just proven a liar or proven, you know, extremely incompetent and wrong. And it cuts to uh, Godzilla has come up out of the river and is uh, crashing along a street. And you get all this sort of um, ground level perspective, uh, people on buses, people at their cars and on the sidewalks. And you get this full look at, uh, at Godzilla, which I think is a pretty scary take on Godzilla personally. Yeah, the the design of Godzilla in this film, front to back, but especially in these early scenes, is, like, truly disturbing. And I, I don't think Godzilla has ever been this intentionally, like, horrific looking. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I think the idea behind the design of Godzilla was to make it look more like a radiation burn victim or, like, a mutating, agonized piece of meat mm-hmm. than, like, a nice, <laughs> properly constructed monster. He's not a fun-looking monster. He looks, like, horrific and scary. And yeah, that's that's some of the stuff I want to talk about in this, because I think it's really interesting to compare this design to others. So one thing from the research is that um, um, the production designer, whose name I don't have, and I'm very sorry about that, um, based this first phase design on a frilled shark. So they have these sort of big, lifeless eyes, um, the wide, oh, absolutely yeah, the wide mouth, and they're also their bottom dwellers, which is what this Godzilla was. You find out later, it's where he fed on nuclear waste. That's right. So you get this sort of just like those other, all those animals that you've you've seen, like the anglerfish and things like that, where they're so lo- far down that their eyes lose the quality that I think, you know, the human brain is is set to look for in other animals that it can understand, right? Like they're it's, they're very yeah, lifeless. Yeah, they're lifeless. They're kind of milky. And they're they're not expressive in any way that we would recognize. Just big circular eyes of small people's, and I think Godzilla's eyes never change this whole movie. Like even when he's full grown in the back half of the film, it's still these oh. small beady white eyes with. Just I did, like yeah, little. Peoples. I did see that in a, in a video in the research with someone said even the size of his eyes never change because his body gets like six times bigger and his eyes get real yeah. beady at the end. Aside from when he's doing the atomic breath and his eyes like glass over with that. He's got he's oh, got that, that, that membrane. Yeah. It's so cool. So cool. <laughs> Um, it looks like uh, like Mercury or something. No, and, and yeah, just the other thing to talk about here is that, yeah, I think even like obviously in older Japanese iterations of Godzilla, you've got, he's like a rubbery suit and there's definitely some more personality. He's got big eyes when he's in his full, like, you know, upright lizard mode. Um, but right. also in the Western versions too, like his eyebrows move and and express and have a personality, right? His face is a face that you can see doing things. And of course, like in a lot of these versions, there's like a little girl who has an emotional connection with Godzilla. None of that is on display here. This is an unknowable force of nature. You will not be able to convince it. Otherwise you're not going to be able to assuage it. I think I, yeah, it almost 
it almost doesn't look like it should be alive. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, Tim's right. There's no attempt to anthropomorphize this creature. There's no attempt to sympathize with it. Uh, and almost all, I th- at least as far as I know, all the American versions tried to equate Godzilla to like a King Kong presence. Like there was some sense of sympathy given mm-hmm. to it. But uh, yeah, not here. That's not what we're looking at in this Toho version. And I, this is really refreshing to me. There's no sense of sympathy given to the monster. And that just allows the feeling of like teamwork and camaraderie on the human side of things that ends up coming together to defeat Mm -hmm. it yeah and i think the sympathy like its limit is the first act of the film just before this kind of stuff where they're like whatever this is we should capture it to study it like what a discovery and the second it starts moving through the city and they especially after that first attack uh, shortly after this they don't talk about that at all it's how do we stop this how do we destroy this? yeah and i think this design lends itself to the metaphor at play here a lot more effectively, which is that this is a force of nature. This is something that is being wrought against us as a society. This isn't an animal that could be tamed or trapped, maybe. It is this faceless, unknowable thing that will continue to destroy and destroy, whether that's you know global warming or something like that. Uh, there's obviously, there's a lot of labels you can apply to this as a sort of critical discussion. And I think having no personality or identity behind this creature's eyes, even in its late phases where it has like a really sort of menacing grin, I'd say uh, is maybe the the more generous way to describe it. I I think it's all super effective and, and it does lend itself towards some people describing this as one of the more horrific Godzilla films, even though it doesn't have a lot of horror tropes in the way it's filmed. Yeah, and I remember the first time I saw a poster for this movie, and it was just a shot of the full-grown Godzilla standing over the city with, like, its kind of gaping mouth and teeth poking every which way, and thinking to myself, like, this is horrifying. Like, what a disturbing uh, version of Mm -hmm. Godzilla. Right, he doesn't have, like, all these, like, neat aligned teeth. They're all, like, scattered and jagged. and Everything's asymmetrical. And, again, I think the at any given moment, it looks like it's in pain. Right, and that kind of, like enforces this idea that it's continuously evolving mm-hmm. right yeah like even in this scene i think the very last shot in the scene here like the second time it has godzilla just kind of rolling through the city there's just blood pouring out of its gills right yeah yeah because it's trying to figure out land like how to live on land yeah yeah all of this ties together like its ability to um i can't remember how they describe it whether it's spontaneously or instantaneously evolve it doesn't have to do that over the course of generations and uh, it's grim specter, and uh, it's just sort of unwillingness to to be understood, uh, I think really ties together into this really terrifying presence. Yeah, I was, you know, I was honestly kind of surprised when I was doing a lot of research for this podcast, because I came across so many people saying that this is the most horrifying Godzilla. And that was actually surprising to me, I because I watched this movie almost as like a I don't know. I almost see this movie as more political than mm-hmm. the other Godzilla movies, not as more horrifying. But when you put it into the context of like, look at this creature versus the other creature designs, this one is definitely the most disturbing. Yeah, I, I think that this film, like, it's in the context of a Godzilla movie, like, f- you strip it back and say, this is a monster movie about Godzilla. Um, it's pretty unkind towards the people mm-hmm. in it. Like, whenever Godzilla causes destruction, there's almost always an accompanying shot of, like, people suffering and dying during the attacks the big one is uh when godzilla pushes over a mm-hmm. building and you have this in this shot of the family like trying to basically get ready to evacuate putting like a helmet on a kid 
and then the building just kind of falls over and they get crushed within it. Like, yeah. that's not a shot that exists within Godzilla movies. It's way too dark and way too macabre for the tone that Godzilla films outside of some of the very early ones. And again, a couple of the later ones go for. Well, that's, that's a really personal kind of scene right there. And, and there's an indifference behind it. So there's another Godzilla movie called, uh, Godzilla Mothra King Ghidorah. Um, I think it, I don't have a year for this, but, uh, it has in that one, Godzilla is the bad guy, like straight, the bad guy and is treated as a sadistic evil. Like Godzilla is actively targeting people. And that I think is the closest that Godzilla ever got to being like, a bad guy or like what we see here like this this actually malicious mm-hmm. force mm-hmm. in this one again it's just this incidental tragic disaster and you see people suffering and i think that's where the horror elements come from and then of course just the disturbing imagery well yeah, yeah even in this scene that we're discussing today there is a lot of these cuts to handheld cameras in the streets filming godzilla as he's coming up the river but then after like he even comes on land there's all these like scattered camera movements of like cars trying to get out of the mm-hmm. way and all these handheld cameras, like obviously like we're in the era of cell phones now. So like I'm assuming a lot of these are cell phones or security cameras. These add such a sense of like personal realism and personal fear uh, because you understand these are people on the ground level that are about to get pretty much eviscerated by Godzilla. Yeah. And it feels kind of like modern disaster footage. Like whenever there's yeah. natural disasters in the world today, they are handheld mm-hmm. cameras. You see, like everyone has a phone now. Every, you always see these disasters happening. You see a tsunami coming. You see what it's doing to streets because we can just film everything these days. And anytime there's this footage of destruction, it feels like real footage that you would see on like YouTube of people mm-hmm. filming a tsunami going through. Well, yeah, and I, I had read that like an earlier iteration of this movie was going to be almost all found footage, right? So I think that lends itself you've still got this footage and there are other parts where like people are looking at a computer screen right down the barrel like they're obviously they're holding a camera and you've got the text superimposed over it mm-hmm. apparently that was really cool yeah, apparently Good a technique. lot more of the movie was going to be like that um but then it still feels like a found mm-hmm. footage film just with like proper well it's super it, it, it's super like desaturated the... it's very realistic it's all yep. ground level like there's one crane shot in it that's used to great effect i don't want to get into that scene because it's a super powerful scene but um uh, i think yeah a lot of it is very grounded in the way it's produced and filmed i am glad that it wasn't a hundred percent found footage because i think cloverfield went there and did that and we don't have to do that again you know well i, th- yeah. I think that would have just been a nightmare for the political scenes in the boardrooms mm-hmm. and things like that like that would have just been terrible so i like what they did in terms of like the news camera footage and then like we already discussed with the press conference that press camera with the zoom at the back of the press mm-hmm. room is absolutely hilarious <laughs> and felt so real because like you know you watch any kind of press conference that camera has to zoom out when someone new comes onto the stage and stuff yeah. it, it's just it's so real yeah, my comparison point would be District 9, which did something yeah. similar in, like, blending um, ah, found footage and, uh, like, actual camera footage and kind of blending them seamlessly. I think D9 kind of messes with it a bit in that it changes half and half. Like, the back half of the film has a lot less found footage and the yeah. front half has a lot more. But it has that same feel of, like, this is all real footage that someone has filmed. Even when it doesn't, it clearly isn't, like... There's always people in the foreground of the shots. There's always lots of busyness happening. It just feels like a person shot all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not a camera that's that's exists outside of the film. And that movie was very affecting in terms of creating a metaphor for a very real-world issue in South Africa. So I think there's a definite parallel to draw with this movie, which is also trying to create allegory and metaphor through providing a sense of realism and connection to the real world. 
Okay, yeah, so I think the cinematography in this scene is really good too. The two shots that really stand out to me, or the two moments, there, there's the scene where in the ca the cabinet's office, or the prime minister's office, they're having a meeting, and there are so many different camera angles that like put the person talking between other groups of people. Like there's people in the foreground, there's people in the background, and it's just amazing how much they do with a room that busy. And again, it, it makes it feel like you're a member of this room listening to this conversation happen. And I, th I think that's just such a cool and well-executed way to film that scene. Well, and I think it also points again to the idea that look at how many people are involved. Look at how many moving parts there are and look at how ineffective it is. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like all these people have to be there. There are scenes where people are relaying a thing like down a line of people sitting at a table. They're going confirmed, go, confirmed, go, confirmed until it gets to the prime minister. Yeah. This, can then say, yes, launch the attack or whatever. The cinematography and editing is helping like tell the story, which I think is always cool when movies do that. And this movie does it so well. And the next scene, which is mm -hmm. the actual, well, after the slight bit of destruction, which is also good looking, um, there's the press conference scene. And I, there's a specific shot, Taylor touched on it with the zoom out and zoom back in. In that shot, you have the uh, sign language mm -hmm. person signing in like a picture in picture. Mm -hmm. And so the shot zooms out with her in that little picture in picture. And it zooms out to put her over top of where she's actually standing on stage and then cuts out the PIP. And it's seamless. Mm -hmm. I think I, I only noticed it because I watched that scene several times over. And it's so smooth and so well done. And that way, when it zooms back in, they can cut out that little picture in picture, but you don't really notice it happening because it cuts it out on top of where she's talking or like where she's standing on I the stage. I didn't notice that at all. I'm definitely going to go back it's, and check that out. It's so cool and it's so well done. It's so smooth and just like such a show-offy bit of cinematography. I, I mm -hmm. was blown away by it. And the film has lots of good cinematography, but within this little sequence we're talking about, that was the shot that like, it, it does so much so effectively and so kind of like secretly. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't even catch that one. But I, I totally agree with what you're saying about the boardroom coverage. I loved the blocking, and I loved feeling like I was sitting at one table looking at the other table talking. Even even the yeah. set's really and good. Like what Tim said, there's like 30 people in the room at any given time, which is a crazy amount of extras to cut around. There's a lot of hard work being done on the cinematography, and they're making it look really easy. Yeah, all of yeah. which is contributing towards, again, this sense of realism, right? You're on the ground level. You're there with other people. You're not flying over the city. Unless, of course, you're in a helicopter, things like that. Everything has to be grounded like that. Right. And I think that lends its yeah. this entire movie towards being this consideration of how would we actually respond to an event of this scale? Um, are our tools, like democracy, really preparing us for something like this? And I'd say, like, since 2016, this movie has just become more relevant because largely i think it's been proven no we're not capable of dealing with a big event the past year and a half in the covid19 pandemic has shown us how leadership even even leadership that has plans in place for a pandemic um, aren't really capable of smoothly navigating it or even like avoiding mistakes that they made three months prior within the same disaster yeah i mean throughout shin godzilla here they do say a few times like this is unprecedented but they don't really use it as an excuse they just have to continue cutting through the red tape yeah i mean the the fact that it's unprecedented is kind of like the thing that the 
that the government is always fighting against because they have rules and regulations for every mm-hmm. possible situation. And then when something you know unprecedented shows up and they try and fit that within their the confines of their rules or the definitions that they've set out for like how to respond to crises, it doesn't fit. And that yeah. leads to a lot of the problems. And I mean, if you look at reviews mm-hmm. from the time, you'll find a lot of people, especially Western critics, saying that um, this movie was largely pessimistic um, about the capabilities of government and things like that. I think that's a little unfair <laughs> to say about... Uh, Um, Shinji and uh, Hideaki in terms of writing it because they were there for the earthquake and the tsunami and Fukushima they would have a first hand account of how their government dealt with it but I think since then it's been proven entirely right it wasn't largely pessimistic about a government's ability to respond to a (laughs) societal threat (laughs) I think quite the opposite it's pretty optimistic in terms of how they were able to rebound from Mm -hmm. the entire cabinet being wiped out (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I know that's getting into a later scene, but I, I totally agree. Like with our, our familiarity of these press conferences and governments being unsure of the next step or what to do next during this COVID pandemic, you, going back to watch this movie had a completely different context in terms of seeing people talk, addressing the media or yeah, things like I that. I think it was super rewarding in the context of the pandemic. It was super rewarding as you know, even just a general fan of kaiju movies and big monster movies, I think it's just, it's a super fresh take and it turned out to be a super accurate take. And uh, I think if you haven't watched it yet, it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, it takes Godzilla in a new, different direction and it's for the better. Like, I, I don't know if Godzilla should stay this forever, at least the, the mm-hmm. Toho Godzilla productions, but having this entry in the franchise is is miraculous. That it A, that it happened and yeah. B, that it worked. Yeah, it's an incredibly refreshing take. And if you did watch it before but haven't watched it in the past year and a half, it might add a bit more context mm-hmm. since the pandemic. And yeah, if you're renting it, which I think, uh, check the show notes when we actually publish the episode, we'll tell you where you can find it. But as of the recording of this, you can buy it for like $6 and change on Google Play. So that's a pretty sweet deal. Wow. We we get no uh, kickback from Google. $6 Canadian. <laughs> yeah. $6 <Yeah>. Canadian. <laughs> So a, a really sweet deal for our U.S. Uh, listeners uh, south of the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, with that, uh, I think we can move into our shout-outs. Uh, Rob, as our guest, we'll let you go first. Yeah, I mean, I could. you can shout-out any scene in this film. I think pretty much any given moment is pretty effective uh, in most of the film. I'm really tempted to shout-out the one where the, the new acting prime minister comes in, because I think that's just a particularly powerful scene where they show how someone who wasn't prepared to come into the situation mm-hmm. reacts to it. But the scene that I think is actually my my favorite, and this is coming as like a fan of the Godzilla franchise, is uh, at 24 minutes. It's the scene where Godzilla first stands up. Like, Evolve was the mm-hmm. first time on land, stands up, and there's this amazing little musical cue. It's, uh, it's a reworking of a song from the original Godzilla, and it's just this like distorted, twisted, very, very lo-fi, mono-channel musical... Um, version Mm -hmm. of the Godzilla theme and it it just feels like this awesome primordial like emergent version of the theme that Godzilla it's like synonymous with with yeah it's all like low brass the big steps right you know it's rumbling there's like a reverberating cello chord Mm -hmm. being played that's kind of like rubbing against the the instrument um it just it it sounds borderline terrible like the mono channel certainly doesn't help but it's the perfect piece of music for this in that like it's showcasing the situation. It's 
it, it feels like the song is coming out of the the dissonant like atonal noises that have been associated with Godzilla so forth and leads into the actual theme being used later on um which falls in line with Godzilla evolving mm-hmm. like becoming Godzilla and the actual threat yeah. that's Japan has to to, to you know mm-hmm. deal with here um I and love then that. also the the music like showcases how the situation is evolving it's this is the point in the film where they realize that what they're doing and how they're handling the situation isn't working and uh it also includes the first use of Godzilla's roar in the movie and again it's it's kind of a a version of the roar that's figuring out what the sound is it's not all the way there it's this like distorted um kind of low level mm-hmm. version of it uh and yeah i just think it's such a cool moment in terms of like how the movie's tone shifts and just visually and tonally like audio yeah. tonally um and i just just a really big fan of that scene well that says a lot coming from someone who's seen most of the godzilla movies that, yeah. i mean like i'm guessing that this is well i guess like he doesn't have to like reach this point of maturation to stand up in some of the movies but this is like i don't it's a know big deal the fact that this this one's a standout for you rob that's a that says a lot yeah, and I mean it is like it's an effective scene. It has all this gravitas here, and it does it does kind of make you sit there and go, "Oh no!" Like, well, they're they're in tr- like if they weren't in trouble already, they're in trouble now. Yeah, and I think the single most disturbing shot in the film it's the last. It's at the very tail end of that scene. It just has Godzilla like standing up behind a like silhouetted mm-hmm. behind a bridge, um, and just something about that image is so unsettling yeah. and disturbing. Like, the shape of Godzilla, this tall, thin, like, these small, unformed arms kind of falling yeah. out of its body. Mm-hmm. Just this bizarre, twisted image that, like, is super effective. Yeah. So I did have something else written down for my shout-out, but I want to switch it last minute. I had spoken <laughs> earlier in the podcast about how Hideaki Anno had sort of innovated the idea of fan service and showing things that were unnecessary to the plot, but still enjoyable to watch. And one of the few instances, I think, in this movie of that is this shot of a tank after it fires. Um, It's a pretty gratuitous shot in terms of, like, military action where it fires. And then the body of the tank does, like, a 270-degree turn to reorient itself on its path before it takes off. The camera's all locked off. It's a pretty cool shot and it adds nothing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it doesn't really add anything, especially compared to the other tank um, footage, which is just them firing. I really feel like this is 100% me just reading into the author. But I do feel like Hideaki Anno is just sitting there going like, look at this cool tank. Look at what it does. I love this. Yeah, and I think it says a bit more than just that. Like, it's showing something about how they're portraying the SDF. They're these, they they can control these tanks so precisely that like the cannon will stay fixed in one spot as this tank does this advanced maneuver and still like effectively fire and hit its target at the same time. I I agree with Rob. I think this scene is really powerful in terms of like how it builds up the Japanese military into like, like something very formidable against Godzilla and it still is, has no impact. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tay, what's your shout out? Uh, my my shout out is something that was just like controversial and very divisive after the release of the movie. Uh, and I really don't know what to make of it. So I figured I'd pose it to you guys. The final shot of the film is of Godzilla's tail. And as we zoom into the tail, we see that it's made up of all these human deformed skeletons and things like that, like creatures 
uh, like just all in skeletal form, making up the whole tail design. It, and this led to it's very annihilation. Yeah, very annihilation. Yeah, and it's not a zoom. It's like hard cuts slowly right. moving in towards yeah. the tail. Mm-hmm. And then the last shot is a is a slow pan along and the tail. There is so many. Th- fan theories and speculations about what this could mean in terms of like how Godzilla in this in this version was created and I just think that that was a really ingenious way to end the movie because the ending is is just basically like a celebratory ending for the heroes in many ways Mm -hmm. but then you have this kind of like in my opinion this is the most horrifying shot in the movie this is where the horror comes in when you see all these like Mm -hmm decrepit skeletons almost like morphed together to form godzilla's tail yeah. so like yeah all you can say is yeah what? i think like i think it's either like you want to read it really base metaphorically it's like man is the monster right um which is easy uh or like people i think people at the time also said like oh they're gonna do sequels and like godzilla knows it can survive better as like people so the fact that it would propagate into people that would then further the destruction of the ah. race, uh, whichever one it is, I I love the unknown ending. Right? They they leave it up to you. I think it's it, always pretty powerful. Exactly, and I don't think that like I don't like the idea of reading into this ending specifically. No, I, I think agree. It's kind of unnecessary to read into it. I think it's mm-hmm. effective as what it is. It just leaves that open question as to like. Like what is happening? What is this? It just adds to the mystery of like this this creature, this disaster. Mm-hmm. I and I as just a celebration of like cool design work. Like it's this horrifying graphic. Like again, these people shaped skeleton things with the dorsal fins, like agonizingly holding their arms out to the sky as they peel away from a tail that's like rot. Looks like it's rotting and has like pus and teeth and stuff sticking out of it. Yeah, it's really really interesting and super effective. It's just like. A horrific last shot. Well, a great way to, a great thing to leave with people as they walk. Exactly. Out of the I just thought it was just yet another yeah. moment of directorial brilliance on Anno's part. Mm-hmm. And no, no sound, yeah. no music, nothing, just the visuals. And I think the hard cuts are. That's a big right. Part of and then the hard cut to credits, and then you get the traditional or classic Godzilla yeah. tones. Yeah. So the three songs that are playing during the credits, it, it hard cuts into the credits of um, the main title theme from Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, uh, Invasion of the Astro Monster, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. So they're, they are um, songs from very different eras of the Godzilla franchise, and they're all kind of iconic, all composed by Akira Ifukabe. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's three very different movies and iconic themes from those movies. That is really interesting because... Mm-hmm. I think that this movie seemed to have pulled from so many different Godzilla references that that just seems to make sense. It's definitely aware of the legacy it's a part of. Yeah, right. It's not. It's not scrapping the past to do something different. It does something different while making tons of references and being very. Once aware. again, credit to the director. Yeah, the, and the mm-hmm. composer is credited as Akira Ifukabe, who did the original Fantastic. Godzilla score. Like that. Who's that? That's who's that's score, uh, credited as the composer. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, to wrap it up, we'll do some recommendations, and I'm going to go first this time. I'm going to make that decision for us, because I think I'm the only person whose recommendation is tied in to what we were talking about today. Um, I'm going to recommend another unusual kaiju film. Uh, It's called Colossal. It's directed by Nacho Vigalondo, and it's also from 2016, actually. Um, And it stars Jason Sudeikis and Anne Hathaway. Um, I don't even know really how to begin describing it. It just 
know that it's a kaiju movie it's a pretty great character study and um it's western and uh it's unusual but it definitely lives in that sort of culture of uh, big monster movies and i'd highly recommend it okay so what's your recommendation rob so my recommendation is a small little canadian film directed and written by matthew rankin called the 20th century um i am not super up on my actors or canadian content unfortunately i watch this kind of randomly um, but it was delightful. So the, the basic premise is about, it's telling the sto- a fictional satirized version of Prime Minister W.L. Mackenzie King's r- rise to power. It's very darkly funny, very sarcastic, very like satirical about Canadian politics and the government and like how government works and has some of the most like visually clever uses of an incredibly low budget. I I thought it was extremely funny and no one's really talking about this thing. It it came out and I don't know why it hasn't been celebrated like unanimously. But anyway, the 20th century uh, by written and directed by Matthew Rankin. That's a great recommendation. We love getting the Canadian content on this podcast, Rob. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know you were watching that on Canada Day, and that sounded like a great way to celebrate, so I've got this on the list. I'll try to watch it soon. I've heard it's very good as well from other people, too. At the time of recording, it's available on Crave Canada. Um, I, I don't know how long it'll stay we, there. We will update it, it in out. the show notes yeah. uh, at the, the time of releasing. Uh, and lastly, my recommendation, I'm going to change on the fly because Tim thinks he's the only one who can provide a <laughs> kaiju reference movie. <laughs> Uh, oh, make me look bad. I'm going to go... <laughs> I love how we're doing a monster movie, and I'm the monster movie guy. And I didn't recommend... I'm recommending this little indie thing. It means you're a better Canadian than us. That's right. Yeah. I've just gotten sick of recommending Canadian stuff every week, so I decided to switch it to a, a Norwegian film, and I'm going to say it with confidence, this is the best spine on my shelf, as far as my Blu-rays go. Oh, man. I and it's, it's the be. big one, Troll Hunter, um, yes. a film by Andre Overdahl. It's from 2010. A movie that uh, I stumbled upon during film school and a lot of people thought it was pretty incredible. Uh, way ahead of its time, I think, in terms of found footage kaiju movies. Um, there's not really noteworthy stars, but I guess I could say the troll hunter himself is played by Otto Jesperson. But the movie follows three college students who go to investigate the death of a lot of bears in, Nor- in uh, Norway and come across someone who claims to be an actual troll hunter hired by the government or by a secret government agency. Uh, I'm going to leave it with that description. It's a very rewarding film to watch if you are into these kind of uh, these kinds of monster movies. And, you know, it even ties into some of like the handheld camera footage we were discussing earlier about Shin Godzilla. Troll Hunter is a gift. That thing is so yeah, it's good. fantastic. All right. And with that, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, that's been another episode, this one on Shin Godzilla. Yeah. And uh, to wrap it up, I guess we'd say if uh, if a giant lizard shows up on the shore of Lake Ontario here in Toronto, we hope the red tape won't hold us back from stopping it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks very much to uh, Rob today for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure having our first oh, guest on the show. Big thanks. First guest. Big deal. Thank you for having me yeah. on. And thanks for giving me a reason to watch this wonderful film. Mm-hmm. It's actually only my second viewing ah, of Shin Godzilla. and uh, That's wild. I think I watched it over the course of double its runtime, just with all the all the you know rewinding and rereading stuff. I feel like I I got a lot out of it. This yeah, week. you know, I'm gonna probably be watching this again in six months. That's how highly I think of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably my second favorite. Wow. Godzilla film. Okay. 
you, what's the first? Yeah, you got to leave us. Uh, the original. The, oh, the OG. The OG. Okay. Of course. Of course. Beautiful. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to Rob. <laughs>